Well, as Sam mentioned, I'm a pastor in, in Southern California in Riverside. Been there since 2007. And before I get too far into this, it's really a privilege to, to be here and to support the work of, of Christian Challenge. I've been uh, encouraged by the ministry of Christian Challenge at USC for uh, about 20 years. Uh, and some of my dear friends began their walk with Jesus through the ministry of Christian Challenge and Really, or they started really gaining traction because of this ministry. And so I, I just have great respect for Neil and Melinda and have known them for about 20 years now. And I, as, as you heard, I was a part of Church in the Valley in Diamond Bar from about 1999 to 2007. I used to work with, I actually used to work with the students at Church in the Valley, so I was sort of he didn't call me the youth pastor, but that's sort of what I did there for uh, my early years there, and, and that's actually how I got to know the Walkers, and uh, I, I would occasionally watch their sons play football, and it was, it was always like, how do I know which number they are out there on the field? And it was like, oh, the ones that are like, you know, two feet taller than anyone else on the field. <laughs> so that was always easy to spot them. When I had my first son, uh, you heard that uh, his name is uh, Gabriel, and uh, he, when he was just a little guy, uh, maybe only four months old, um, this is Gabriel right here, when he was about four months old, uh, he, I would bring him with us to uh, our student ministry, and you know, he was sort of like a mascot of our, of our little youth group that we had, and, and uh, once in a while, I remember this one time, Neil picked up my son, and was sort of tossing him up in the air. <laughs> sort of like a, like a football or a basketball, you know. And I think I remember him tossing him to, to one of his sons, and it was sort of like the egg toss. Have you ever done the egg toss? And, and uh, you know, you catch the, the egg, and then you take a step back, and it's like, you remember? I don't know if you guys remember this, but I, <laughs> I don't know which, which son it was, but it was an egg toss experience, and... and and, and I, I, I remember looking at them, and I'm a new parent. I don't know any better, you know, and, and at that point. And so uh, I made my wife a little nervous, but she, uh, she sort of looked over at Melinda, and Melinda said, oh, it's fine. He does that all the time, you know. And, it was, uh, and no problems. He didn't drop them. <laughs> to my knowledge, he didn't drop them. So. And you'll hear a little bit more about my story in a bit, but I, I just have a tremendous amount of respect uh, for the focus and and really the faithfulness of the of the group of leaders that that lead this Christian challenge, uh, and that that goes for Jeremy and and Aaron Gillum. I've known both of them for for uh, many years as well, and so I'm just I'm really encouraged to see all of you students buying up this extra week for training. Uh, you could take a break from your studies and just totally sleep. And uh, you, you could just, uh, you know, some of you are like, yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, you could have just went to, you know, went on a cruise. You could have went on another trip. But you decided to take some time and invest in your training. And I just commend you for doing that, for making this a priority. And uh, you might have been on the fence. and Or maybe you were just like, I'm all in. Well, regardless, you're here. And so I, I'm really glad that you are here, and, and I've been praying for, for all of you, and my family is back at home, and they're praying for you as well, and for this week, that it would have a real impact, and so what we're going to do this uh, week is we're looking at the idea of being entrusted, being entrusted, and so here, here's some definitions for what it means to be entrusted. It means this, to be assigned the responsibility, and here it is, for doing something. I mean, you know this. You're all college students, and, and you, you, know, you know what this means. If you've ever watched someone who has siblings, okay, there you go. Who's ever watched their siblings? Maybe it was your little brother, your little sister, and it's that, it's that first time you had that responsibility, and the big question that your parents asked you is, can I, can I trust you? Can I, can I really trust you? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> And they're wondering, I don't, I don't know if he can or she can, but can I trust you? This is the idea with being entrusted. Essentially, this 
is their responsibility, but now it's your responsibility. So there's this idea of responsibility passes from and maybe the the other owner or the the other responsible party, and it's it's it, it becomes your responsibility. You've been entrusted. So um, I already mentioned my son again. Here's his picture. Nearly 16 years ago, uh, I became a father. I held this little guy. Uh, it was a very emotional moment for me to become a dad. I remember like you know like it was yesterday. It was just can't believe he's almost 16. But the nurses in the hospital. We, uh, we had our, our children at Kaiser in Baldwin Park. Uh, the nurses really helped us out that first uh, day. And they were coaching me. They were right there alongside me. My wife was out of commission. And so I just remember the first diaper change. And it was just sort of like I'm fumbling through this whole experience. And it's really difficult. And this nurse was like, hey, I got, I got it. And so she, was, she took care of it. And several diaper changes she just took responsibility for it. But then there was this point where it's sort of like she threw me the ball and she, the diaper. <laughs> and it was like, Dad, you're up. You know, this, is, this is your responsibility. This has been entrusted to you. That's what this idea means. And so we left the hospital, and, and I, I wanted to teach my little son right away how to do things. I wanted to teach him how to sit uh, a little too early. Uh, I tried propping him up on the bed, and he uh, fell off the bed. And so uh, we got one of these things, a little Lazy Boy recliner for him. You know, I don't know if you've used one of those, if you remember that memory. <laughs> but I was so proud of him. He could sit, you know, in one of these. And I used to love taking funny photos of my son uh, while he was sleeping. You know, I'd dress him up and do different things. So he was a rock star back then. <laughs> Got a wig one time, and he was rocking out, I think, as he was sleeping, praising. <laughs> He's a musician now, so it's kind of funny because he, he loves to sing. He loves to play the guitar. And he maybe this is what planted the idea early on. Uh, I, I played in a men's softball league. I was trying to reach out to uh, non-Christians in my area, and... Uh, a friend of mine uh, congratulated me for for having you know a son, and and he brought me a box of cigars, which, to which I didn't really know what to do with, but I had my son pose with a cigar. <laughs> so that was way back in two thousand and three, and uh, that was a long time ago. He's no longer a little guy. Here he is today. Now, you see what happens. <laughs> I lost all my hair. <laughs> but it goes fast. And, you know, he, he's almost 16. I'm about to teach him how to drive. And, and he's been my responsibility, you know, all of these years. And I still actually have this responsibility. And I take it very seriously. But it's about to shift pretty soon. I mean, it's, it's about to shift. And, and what's going to happen is I'm going to kind of hike the ball over to him and say, okay, run with it. And here's another definition of to be entrusted. It's to put something into someone's care or protection. So this is a very similar idea. So it's, it's the idea of I'm, I'm turning over, you know, this, these resources to you. Okay, I'm turning over resources to you. And I have a friend right now who just got a job working as a financial planner. And he's setting off on a path, this new career path, and, and he's working for Edward Jones now. And essentially, he's asking people to entrust what to him? I mean, their money. He, he's saying, hey, trust me. Trust your future to me. Your, trust your hard-earned money to me, and, and, and I'm going to make sure this is invested wisely and carefully now, that's a lot of pressure for my friend, and, and because with precious resources like, like people or with money or your future, you don't just put that in anyone's hand. You want to make sure that you've, uh, you're careful to entrust, right? If you're on the receiving end of, of something, you also want to be really careful with what you receive as a trust when someone says, hey, do you, do you want this? Can you, can you handle this? I mean, you want to be really thinking through 
that. Because ultimately, when you're entrusted something or someone, you're, you're what's called a steward. And you, you should jot that down. And, you know, stewards are, are ones that have been entrusted something. And you're different from an owner. Stewards are not owners. Owners, when I'm the owner of something, it means that I, I have, I'm the one handing out responsibilities if I'm the owner. If I'm the boss, uh, I'm handing out responsibilities for other people, I'm trusting others with, with something. But when I've been entrusted with something or with someone, it's not really about me. I, I realize it's people in the past have played a role, and, and I, I'm pretty much carrying something forward. I'm moving something forward, I, and I'm, you know, people in the future. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand this off to someone else. I'm playing a role. It's not just going to end with me. If, if, if you're entrusted with something, it's not, it's not just going to end with you. It's just going to pass through you when you've been entrusted. And so there's some key issues that we're going to look at together throughout the week. Uh, we're going to look in the book of 2 Timothy. This theme of being entrusted shows up. Uh, it's, it's, it's mentioned explicitly, but then also it's just referenced. The idea is referenced throughout the book. And so the book of 2 Timothy, it's a, it's a letter written from a man named Paul, a leader named Paul, who who was hostile towards Christianity and then had this major U-turn experience where he, he uh, has this radical conversion Major U-turn, he goes from persecuting Christians, and, and, uh, and then after this conversion, uh, he becomes the key pioneer of, of the Christian movement, and he's an individual that God used in a tremendous way. And, and so the book of 2 Timothy is actually, it's, it's often referred to as, as, his, as Paul's last will and testament. It's, it's at the end of his life. He's writing to a man named Timothy that he has poured his, his life into. And at this point, Paul knew that his life on earth was, was nearly over. And he's writing from prison in Rome. So that's the setting. He's, he's in a prison cell. He's there his, at least a second time. Uh, the first time when he was in prison, he was on house arrest. And so house arrest meant that he actually had some privileges. He could, uh, he could study. He could... Uh, preached to people. He he had sort of a ministry going on in his first imprisonment, um, but this second arrest was 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 pretty much different. And the other time he he was able to have visitors, but this time he was actually more what you would think of as a prisoner. He's chained. He's more treat. He's treated more like a criminal. Uh, very little light to read with. Uh, not great resources to use if you wanted to write. There was poor sanitation uh, in, in, in this prison. And really the only relief would be that he would see the Lord, that he would die. And so he's awaiting at this point really his execution in Second Timothy. And he knows it's coming. And one of the very, very difficult things that you get from this book is that you see that he feels deserted and abandoned by people that were really precious to him. Uh, people that he'd poured his life into and loved and served had, had abandoned him. And so what's happening in, in 2 Timothy is Paul is, is passing on the baton to Timothy, to really his son in the faith. And he's saying, it's, it's, it's your turn. And it's Paul's way of entrusting more to this younger leader named Timothy. And so uh, you'll be hearing from, from me in this, and you'll be hearing from, from Chuck later in the week uh, on, on the similar theme out of this book. And, and we're going to get more of the background of this book as we kind of touch on specific passages that, uh, that we're focusing on. So before we get any further, I want to share with you a little bit more about my story and, and how I came to know Christ. And so I, I'm a California native. I'm a California kid. I was born in San Jose. Uh, I've lived in every part of, I mean, Northern California, uh, Central California, and then now in Southern California. And so I spent my early years in Sonoma, which is a small town. I was born in San Jose. Within a few years, my family moved up to this town, uh, Sonoma. It's like a small town in Northern California. 
It's known for the wine country there and beautiful green hills, small town feel, historic kind of town square. This is like 4th of July, which the whole town would come out and it was like you kind of knew everybody in Sonoma if you were there, and so got really close to a lot of individuals. My dad actually was a pastor of a, of a small Baptist church there in Sonoma, and I loved that town. I mean, it was a fun town. I grew up playing sports there. I grew up playing baseball, soccer, uh, if you can believe it, basketball. Uh, it was, it was uh, everybody made the team kind of thing, so, <laughs> so uh, I, I made it, yeah. Like fourth string, but hey, I made it, okay? So, but life was good there. I, I really enjoyed there. But one day my parents, they pulled us together. I, had a, I have a sister who's a year and a half older than me. And my parents said, Josh, Rachel, we need to talk to you. Uh, we're moving. We're moving to a new church. I was 12 years old, and it was not a happy day. Uh, junior high is hard enough, but then to have to start over and make new friends when you're uh, at that point, I think I was like four foot one, you know, 12 years old. Hard to break into a new city when you're really, really tiny. Uh, not that I've grown that tall, but uh, but we just weren't excited about it. And my dad was going to become a pastor of a new church in a, in a town called Grover City. And it didn't sound all that exciting. My, my parents said, hey, it's, it's, it's on the coast. And I was like, so? Because the coast in, uh, in Northern California was cold, and you didn't really want to go there that much for the beach. And so, and I didn't really care. NorCal beaches weren't that fun. And so, but one, one, of, the, one of the leaders from my dad's new church drove this U-Haul down and picked, picked us up. We loaded up all of our stuff. All my friends said goodbye and uh, get in this U-Haul with this man that I don't know. He's one of the leaders in my dad's new church. His name was Ken. And I don't know why my parents put me in Ken's U-Haul, but, but they did. <laughs> and, and I was like in tears saying goodbye to my friends. And, and, and Ken was an, he was sort of an engineer type. And he said, Josh, do you, do you know how a diesel engine works? No, Ken, I don't. <laughs> I'm 12. <laughs> And, I, and frankly, I didn't care how it worked, but he spent hours breaking it down for me <laughs> to try to help me get over this move. And I remember just eventually like thinking, it was like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> I'm not paying attention, Ken. So I fall asleep. I wake up, and well, he woke me up, as we pull around the corner, and I see this. And I was like, well, where are we? This is your new this is your new home. And all of a sudden, I was like, friends? Who? You know, we live at the beach? Yeah, the Grover City actually was renamed Grover Beach a few years later um, for a marketing thing, I'm sure. To But this is where I spent from middle school up until college. And um, I, I attended a high school, just public high school there, called Arroyo Grande High School. I don't know if you, any of you have ever heard of it. <laughs> Zach Efron went to Arroyo Grande High School. Not when I was there. I mean, he, he wasn't probably born yet, but <laughs> he later did. But it was an amazing place to live and to play. Uh, I loved, while I was growing up, the value, highest value for me was, was sports. I mean, I just loved playing sports. I grew up playing baseball. Um, my dad taught me how to play tennis, and then I got really into wrestling. And so it was funny. The combination of tennis and wrestling were the two that I excelled most in. And so you sort of have the gentleman sport and the combat sport. And so it was, I, my friends always gave me a hard time about that. But I wanted to go on and, and, uh, and wrestle in college, but didn't, wasn't good enough. Wasn't given the opportunity to do that. But I was given a tennis scholarship uh, at a small college in Riverside called Cal Baptist. And I had really no other solid plan, and, and I had a girlfriend there through my junior and senior year, and, and so I had to say, you know, goodbye to her. I'm going to sunny, beautiful Riverside, and I decided to move south. And I, I here, here's a picture of Riverside on a clear day. <laughs> we, we tend to collect the smog in our part of the 
in our part of Southern California. But when I arrived at, River, at Riverside at CBU, it was sort of this small liberal arts college. And having grown up in the church, uh, I sort of knew how to fit into this Christian college environment. Uh, I had a lot of things in my head about what I had been taught growing up, but I had very little deep in my heart as far as real faith. I knew a lot of answers. I could be in Bible trivia, uh, but I didn't have a real genuine walk with Jesus. And some guys uh, really began to get to know me, ask me questions about my life, befriended me, and I really enjoyed that. And some guys in particular, one in particular, began to really challenge me in my faith. And he could see I was really trying to fit into this environment, but he could see something was missing. Apparently, I wasn't fooling him. And so he pulled me aside one day, and he just said, Hey, Josh, it's just becoming clearer and clearer to me that you're sort of faking it. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? And he just said, Look, I, I don't think you need to fake it. He said, I think you could just be where you are because I don't believe you. And he just, he just said, Josh, I just want to give you permission to just be where you are, but for the sake of the rest of us, you don't need to fake it. We'll still accept you. And, and honestly, that just sort of hit the nail on the head for me. He described me you know, spot on. And what was going on was I was sort of drafting off of the faith of my parents. I was drafting off the faith of my parents, and then I arrived at this small Christian college, and I started drafting off the faith of a handful of Christians that were there. And they were really kind, and it was easy to sort of draft off of them and sort of blend into the group. Uh, but when he said faker, <laughs> it sort of stung. And actually, it was liberating on a certain level. It was liberating because I just decided I'm just going to stop playing the game. And he sort of gave me the permission to do that. And so I just decided I'm just not going to do that anymore. So I started sleeping in. Instead of going with my friends to their church, I just started sleeping in. I, I started spending extra time uh, sleeping. Uh, I started developing my tennis. I, I was supposed to play tennis there, so I started working on my tennis game, started hitting the gym more, spent a lot of late nights with friends at restaurants and just getting to know different people. And throughout those months, my dad, he started calling, checking in on me. How you doing, Josh? And I just, yeah, I'm fine, Dad. I'm having a great time here. He says, hey, how's your faith? <laughs> so he could tell where things were really at. And at one point, he just said, hey, Josh, I just want to encourage you. Uh, a buddy of mine is speaking in your city tonight. And he said, would you go? Just do me a favor. Go and just hear this guy speak. And I said, yeah. He said, it's a revival. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so I went to this church service, and it was full. I mean, it was full of people. It was a good-sized church, several, you know, probably 500, 600 people uh, filling this church, and this guy started speaking out of the book of Joel. And he gets to this section in the book of Joel and talks about returning to God and, and, and weeping and, and rending your heart to him. Maybe God will have grace on you, have compassion on you, return to him. And, and I just, it was like the Lord just said, this is your opportunity. It was like God sort of drew a line in the sand and said, hey, it is time now to decide where you're going to stand. And, and these were the days where people were invited to respond and walk up an aisle and, and come and pray with the pastor. And so he said, is it, if God is speaking to anybody, you know, and you want to pray with someone, I thought, man, everybody's just going to run up that aisle. And so I was like, I want to be the first one there. And so I start shooting down the aisle. No one else is going down the aisle. <laughs> and I just walk up to the guy, and he met me at the front, and he said, what's going on? I just broke down. And I just said, I, I just think I've been playing a game. And it hasn't really convinced anyone. I'm not convinced. And I'm, I'm, I'm broken. See, my, my relationship back home with that girl was broken. 
I messed up. I was trying to maintain it from a distance, but it wasn't healthy for either one of us. And this guy, just through my brokenness, he just pointed me to yield my life to Jesus Christ as Lord. And he described what it meant to, 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 to have Christ be the Lord of your life, the boss of your life. And I had come to believe up to that point that I, I could somehow separate belief you know, in Christ from following Christ. I was just sort of separating. I believe in him, but I'm not really ready to follow him. And so that, that guy, he just helped me understand that, that that is the commitment. When you decide to follow Christ, you're actually yielding your way to him. And this was a huge ask. I mean, this was a major. I finally understood that God was asking me to give my life to him. And up until that point, I just wasn't willing to do it. I, would, I was sort of giving him slices of my life when it was convenient, but not, not the core, not the whole thing. But now I was ready. And so I just responded, and I just made a commitment to Christ, right? Then there was, it was October 31st, 1995. It was Halloween. And, uh, you know, that, that changed my life. Called my parents. First thing I did, though, I went back to my dorm room, and I told my, my freshman roommate, and I just, I just said, hey, let me tell you about what, what just happened. And he just said, you know, I'm so glad that I need, and I just said, I want to grow. I, I, you know, I've, I've heard and read the Bible as a kid and had it read to me, but I want to grow and really get to know God. And I said, can you, can you help me with that? And he said, I'm so glad that, that, that this is going on in your life because I needed that as well. And so we just started trying to help each other grow. And, and that, that year was just spent getting to know God through the Bible. I started reading the Bible growing a heart for God's word. And, and, and then the next two years in college, me and a few buddies would get up at 6 in the morning. I don't know who came up with the idea, but we decided let's get up at 6 in the morning and meet in the baseball dugout and pray and read Scripture together and ask God to use our lives. And so we did that most every morning. One of us would bang on the other person's door and drag each other to the dugout. We'd do that. We'd spend some time with the Lord and encouraging each other and praying for each other. And sometimes we'd go right back to bed. And some would go off to, to, to class. I, may, I schedule my classes later in the day usually. So, <laughs> But I was asking God, God, would you use my life for whatever, for whatever you want to do? I met my wife, Erica, my junior year and somehow convinced her to marry me. And uh, we got married right after college. Fast forward nearly 20 years. Here's, here's my family photo. This is my this is my whole family. This was actually almost two years ago. So Gabriel has surpassed my wife in height. He's he is just like an inch. Uh, I'm hoping he goes past me. My son Gavin is 12. My daughter Grace is nine. And I sensed a, a call to ministry during college, like right? well, really, really early on. I started sharing my faith with people in the dorms. Started sharing my faith with people in the mall. Uh, started, I got a job at a, at a yogurt shop, a yogurt and sandwich shop, started sharing with my coworkers. And I, I didn't have much to share, but as God was showing me things in the Bible, I would just pass on what I could. And we knew we needed training. Right after we got married, uh, we knew we needed to get some training in ministry if we were going to do ministry. And so we found, uh, we heard about a church called Church in the Valley which was in Diamond Bar at the time. And we, we heard that they were a church that was raising up leaders. And here's a picture of, of Church in the Valley's 30th anniversary. And you'll notice Neil over here. Uh, when we got to Church in the Valley, which I know some of you are familiar with, with Church in the Valley in Alhambra, uh, but when we got to know Church in the Valley, I, I met uh, this guy first. Can you go back to that slide? I met uh, this guy right here, Nathan Lewis first. He was a professor at my college, and he really invested in me and my wife in our, in our early marriage. And then we, we said, where do you go to church? And so he said, well, we go to Church in the Valley. So I met Randy Lanthrop at Church in the Valley and his wife, Cindy. I met Neil and his wife, Melinda. And what struck me was, how do you get 
three, I mean, there's, there's another man up here, Greg Fuller, but early on he wasn't in the same role. role. This is their advisory board. Uh, but I was struck by how do you have three of these leaders that have deep, like, uh, influence in, in so many people in this one church. It was unusual to, to find this. It, it's tough to find. The reason is because it's tough to find people who stay long-term in ministry. You, you may not know that, but it's, it's really hard to find people who stay and, and plant roots in ministry and invest for years and decades and multiple decades. It's just hard to find that. Last I checked, I think the average for a typical ministry, uh, you know, minister or pastor is like three to four years on average, and then and then they move on, and people either get run out of churches or they leapfrog to the next best thing, or 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 they just don't work very hard, and so they 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 either can't stay. Um, but it's it's hard to find leaders who pour deeply into people. I, I, Randy uh, was recently called. Uh, Randy, the the pastor of Church in the Valley, was recently called by a group called the Send Network. It's a it's a Baptist denomination group that's trying to help start more churches in uh, amongst our denomination of churches. And a guy called him to interview him. He's writing a he's writing a book basically on mult- churches within our denomination of Baptist churches who multiply. He said, "I'm trying to find and interview people who are multipliers." And that the churches are multiplying churches. He said, I've only been able to find 20 churches so far in our country. And he's working for the Send Network, and he's writing this major book on this. And as he's doing his research, he hasn't been able to find too many multiplying churches. And by multiplying, what he means is churches that actually have an intentional strategy to begin more churches. And that that's what this church uh, has been doing. Church in the Valley actually has planted or helped, well, has planted five churches in their history. That, that is unusual for churches. And so when we got connected there as a, at that point as a 20, 21, 22-year-old, uh, it just seemed like this is a great place to learn and to get training. And, and running with a good group of people was a really important part of our 20s, and, and that was uh, what we found at Church in the Valley. And I was going through seminary in those years, Pretty slowly, I was sharing with Jeremy earlier over lunch that I took eight years to go through seminary because the primary training I was getting was from the leaders who were investing in in my wife and my life and some of my friends. Those were the primary learning and training was going on. It was you know in college I learned about quiet time and prayer, but it was in my church where I started learning about scripture memory. I started learning about evangelism. I started learning about the heart attitudes and how to treat one another relationally. And and in those years, one of the key tests that was going on was I needed to pass the test of being faithful, just being faithful in small things, proving faithful. Luke. Chapter 16, verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And so in those early years, my pastors, my leaders there were just, they were seeing if Josh would be faithful with the things that he was entrusted. Whether it be a a student ministry or uh, setting up and tearing down chairs. I remember the first Sunday I got to church in the valley and I was, I had a degree in religion. I was ready to take over the world as a 21-year-old. And I showed up at Church in the Valley, and I, I thought, I'm going to meet the pastor. So I go meet Randy Lanthrop. I said, hi, I'm Josh, and I, I, I just graduated Cal Baptist with a degree in religion. He said, nice to meet you. And I was telling him about, you know, ministry experiences I'd had up to that point. And he said, I said, hey, how, how, can, I, how can I help? You know, I, I've been involved in youth ministry. And these. he said, you know, right now, uh, we need to get all these chairs that are in here. Put on those racks right there. I'm like, okay, yeah, I could do that. Can you do that? Yeah. So I did that. And the next week I show up, hey, how can I help out? You know, I, I've been involved in youth ministry, and and, and uh, I could help with college students. I'm a, I just graduated, you know. And, hey, do you know how to unroll cables, Josh? Yeah. 
like these? Yeah. Why don't you help with that today? Okay. And so what Randy was doing was he's testing and he's entrusting things and he's checking to see if this guy will be faithful. That's, those are tests along the way. I was there for uh, eight years total. And I was, at one point, it really shocked me, but he said, would you come and be part of my, my staff, my ministry staff? He hired me full-time to be one of the pastors on his staff. And then in 2007, after serving there and learning from, from them, we sensed God was saying, it's time to say goodbye to this church and this family and leave and plant a new church. And so we started praying. God led us to, to move back to Riverside, about 15 to 20 minutes away from the school that I went to. I'm closer to UC Riverside, so if you know where UCR is, where our church is actually closer to that than we are Cal Baptist. Uh, but we moved back to Riverside in 2007 to plant OCC, our church. And God has really, he's blessed the work there. Uh, here's the team that we moved with. These were all a group from 2007 from Church in the Valley. I actually brought my friend, my, one of my dear friends, Scott, is here with me. Uh, and he's going to be doing a, a, a breakout session uh, this week. Uh, he and his family came, uh, a single guy right here, Barry, real muscly guy. He's like a bodyguard. Uh, uh, DJ and Anna Chapman, and then my wife and I and our two kids. You know, since then, there's more kids, and this guy got married. He met his wife at Chipotle. <laughs> you, never, you never know where you're going to meet your wife, so. Uh, but God continue. This continues to be my major assignment. So check this picture out. We we took the same pose ten years later. So back back it up one more time. Okay. So everybody was in the same pose, and everybody's holding, you know, hands with their. Okay. Here we go. Here's the next photo. <laughs> so ten years later, that's why Scott's holding his son's hand. <laughs> but something unique. The group of people that had poured into us stayed together for a long time. In fact, they're still doing ministry together. And so one of the things we were told is, hey, when you plant your church, it's not likely that a lot of these people will stick with you. So just be okay with it. They said, church planting is sort of like scaffolding. You, you put up all this scaffolding around a building to paint it and get it ready, but as soon as the church is, is sort of established, then the scaffolding is taken down and, and a lot of those people aren't around anymore. And by God's kindness, a lot, you know, these, this whole group is still with us and very much involved in what we're doing. Our church has uh, three services on Sunday mornings, and uh, here's a picture of, of, one, of our, one of our services. This was uh, the last day of our two services, and so we took a, a photo. Our second service group took a photo, and we, we meet in a community center. We, we set it up, and we tear it down. We stack chairs. We roll out cables. That was really handy, learning those lessons early on. We've been mobile ever since, and uh, the church we're from, Church in the Valley, is 31 years, I think, mobile, portable. And, and you know, that's really helpful to, to learn from people who've been doing that, been really faithful. Pastoring has been a real joy. This is something that God has entrusted to me now. It's a new responsibility. Uh, it's... We launched the church when I was 30 years old. I'm now 41, and I, I often feel way over my head, way over my head. I keep scratching my head, and I, it's like I've never been here before. There's so many things that are, I, that are new in ministry. Uh, how do I lead this staff? How do we do two services? How do we do three services now? How do we face new challenges? And God has just been so faithful. He's been so kind and so faithful and, and so the book 2 Timothy has often been what has encouraged me because it's a, a seasoned warrior writing to, warrior in, in, in ministry and leader in ministry, writing to a younger leader, charging him. And so again, look at entrusted. Entrusted means this, to be assigned the responsibility for doing something, to put something into someone's care or protection. So I want to look briefly and then we're going to get into this over the next several messages. But let's look briefly at the start of 2 Timothy and see how Paul highlights what, what's been entrusted to this young leader. So 2 Timothy 1 through 7, just so you can get an idea of, of who's writing this and, and a feel for the book. It begins with this. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, 
So he's, he's writing this letter. According to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul writes, I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Remember, Paul's in prison. He wants, when, when, you can imagine when, when Paul was, was arrested or when Paul knew he would be taken and knew he needed to go to, to Jerusalem, which eventually led to his arrest, saying goodbye to, to people like Timothy was really hard, but he knew he needed to trust God and that God had a plan for, for his life, even through his arrest. So recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Verse 5, Paul writes, I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded now lives in you also. So Timothy, what we learn is Timothy's faith was, was passed from his grandmother to his mother, it says there, and, and now to him. Some of you can identify with that. You don't have to raise your hand, but some of you would say, yeah, you know, I, I received my faith from my grandmother to my parents or my grandparents to my, and some of you would say, you know what, that's not me. In fact, my, my parents were, were first generation Christians. They both came to know Jesus Christ at the age of 18. My dad was led to Christ on a tennis court. Uh, he was living with my mom and he was, my mom was working, paying the bills and he was playing tennis. And uh, it, it didn't work out that way very long. <laughs> uh, but one day he was playing tennis, and a guy from a ministry called Campus Crusade walked up and, and struck up a conversation while my dad was waiting for his tennis partner to show up. And the guy said, the guy shared four questions with him, and my dad became a Christian right there on his tennis court. He took this little track home, this little pamphlet. He shared it with my mom, and she became a Christian. The back of the track said, find a church. They opened the phone book, and they found a little Baptist church in San Jose. And, but they were the first generation Christians. Some of you can identify with that. Maybe for you, God is doing something new, brand new in your family, because maybe you're the very first to come to faith. And some of you are nodding your head, and that's, that's you. And maybe your parents didn't, have, didn't raise you in the church. But for Timothy, this was generational, okay? This was a generational thing. So verse 6, it says, For this reason, Paul writes, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. When a fire is lit but it's starting to cool off, what do you do? You fan it, right? <laughs> you, 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 what's that thing called? Bill Bellows. I should have written, I should have known that. Have you ever fanned anything with your hand? No. Newspaper. You just to, to light the fire, basically, to get the thing stoked again. He says, fan this into flame. Look at verse 7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity or cowardice. God didn't give us that kind of spirit. Because courage can be a struggle at any point. So Paul is saying, Timothy, take courage. You have a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Then Paul does this. He makes the ask. Verse 8. This is the ask. I think verse 8 really seems to capture in one verse the whole heart of Paul's message to Timothy in this book. Verse 8 is it's carried on in different places, but it's, it's I think, the heart of of, of, of what he's trying to get at. There's a big ask here. He says, essentially, Timothy, will you commit at the highest level? We commit your life at the very highest level. Look at what he says. Verse 8. Do, so do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This is a major ask. Will you join me in suffering? Paul from prison is inviting young Timothy to join him in the kingdom fight. Will you join up? Will you commit your life as I have to advance the cause of Christ? You say, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed to identify with Christ. Don't be ashamed to identify with, 
with me, Paul, who's in prison. Because to testify about Christ in those days and to say I'm a Christian in those days would bring major ridicule, much like today. Major criticism, much like today, especially for you on your campus. Often persecution, rejection from family. In those days, prison, some people today still. And it could even mean death. And this was a huge ask of Timothy for Paul to say, hey, will you go all in and not be ashamed to suffer? And what Paul's saying is, look, I'm done. Who's next? One of my leaders, uh, one of my mentors, actually my mentor's mentor, Harold Bullock, uh, was heading into major heart surgery about, uh, about a year and a half ago, heading into major heart surgery. And I was at a meeting with about 10 other pastors gathered around Harold. And he, he said, you know, I don't know how this is going to go down. He's 71 at that point, and he's got this major issue in his heart. And I was fortunate to be in this meeting, and he looked around this group of pastors, and he said, guys, he said, you owe me. I, like, I leaned in. He, says, he looked at everyone. You owe me. He said, some of you, I found your wife for you. He said, you owe me. Some of you, this is Pastor Harold Bullock is out of his church has come around 70 churches been planted out of that church and leader uh, ministries have come out of this church. It's in Fort Worth, Texas. And he just says, you owe me. I poured my life into you or I poured my life into the person who has poured their life into you. And so he said, I poured it all out. I've shared all of my resources with you. He had just given us a flash drive of his brain. He said, this is, this is every, everything I've ever written. Every, everything I have on my, on my old files. He says, I'm, I'm, and he, he passed this flash drive around to all of us. And everyone's like putting it in our computers quickly before our computers crashed. But he says, you, I've, opened, I've opened up my hands to you with resources and time. I backed you up. I've advised you. You owe me. And I, and I want you to pay it back. He said, pay it back. It's time to pay it back. Not to me, he said, but to one another. I, I've entrusted some things to you. Now I want you to pass that on to one another. Some of you have resources. Some of you have insight, wisdom. Some of you have people that are resources. And you, he said, you, you owe me. And I want you to give that back to one another. And Paul, Paul, what we're seeing in this passage is telling Timothy essentially the same thing. He's, he's saying, will you join me in sacrificing to make Christ known? And I know that's a scary, scary ask. But he's saying, look, the God who lives in you, he will supply the power Verse 7, he'll supply the power, he'll supply the love, he'll supply the mental focus to keep going and to stay on track all along the way. And so he's saying, Timothy, are you, are you in? For me, up until I was 18 years old, I was just on the fence. I was trying to straddle the world with one foot, and I was trying to sort of be in God's kingdom. But when I committed my life to Christ, I stepped fully into the kingdom, and I understood my life was no longer my own. And, and uh, he was actually entrusting, Jesus was entrusting a message to me that I was to unashamedly pass on and pass on and pass on through my life, through my time, through my resources. Look at where it goes. Paul continues, 2 Timothy verse 9 and 10, chapter 1. You know, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a, li- a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And Paul is just rehearsing the gospel. He's rehearsing his salvation. He's saying, Timothy, you've been saved. What other option do you have but to share this? It goes on, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel is what people need. It's what I needed. 
It's what we need. It's what you need. The gospel is what we need. And the gospel is the only explosive material that can blow open the gates of hell and set people free. It has the power to change life. It can change your life. It has changed my life. It's changed many of your lives. Paul's saying, Timothy, can I entrust this to you, this message, this mission? Join me. And then look at these last two verses, and then we're, and then we're wrapping up. Verses 11 and 12. Paul says, of this gospel, I was appointed a herald. A herald is someone who, who proclaims. And an apostle, that's someone who's, who goes with the authority to speak for another. Because I appointed you a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I'm not ashamed, Paul writes, because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Paul was confident. He was secure. He trusted God with his life for eternity. And even on earth. This, this was his invitation for a life on mission to testify. And so I, I, I started here with this, and we'll continue on tomorrow. But I hope you'll consider accepting this invitation that Paul gave to Timothy to join in the fight, the kingdom fight, to join in the suffering that that might bring. Accepting this life mission. There's so much joy in life when you do. In 2 Timothy, what, what we see is really the interplay of, of God and a proven leader making a giant ask of a young leader. And I, and I look forward to seeing how God will use this in this week and this type of a, uh, invitation in all of our lives this week. And so uh, I hope that the core theme, some of the things that, that Chuck will probably be looking at and I'll be looking at, um, I hope there's some things that jump out at you and you say, I really needed to hear that. That was, that was what God brought me here for. And I, I'm praying that will be the case. And so I'll be here uh, through Friday. And so I, I really, after Tuesday, I, uh, I, my part is done, and I'll be I'll freed up as well just to, to uh, hang with you guys, uh, play sports with you guys, and just enjoy the time up here. Uh, and so uh, if you'd like to visit and chat and get to know uh, me, I'd, I'd love to, to visit with you. So uh, let's pray as we wrap up. Lord God, we invite you uh, to challenge us this, this week. We invite you to challenge our big ideas. We invite you to speak to us uh, right where we need to respond. Uh, God, we, I'm sure some in here can identify uh, with parts of my story and just what you have, uh, what you asked, God, when you invited me to be real with you, and to get right with you. And Lord, I'm sure that there are some that are wrestling right now in their hearts over uh, their loyalty to you and, and the struggle uh, that it is to, uh, to, to press forward with you. And so, Lord, I, I'm sure that there's just a variety of stories here. I look forward, God, to uh, sharing together this week. I look forward to seeing students uh, invest more of their time in, in growing their faith and in being trained in these years. And uh, would you show us the barriers right now, God? Would you show us anything that might be blocking our growth and uh, our ability to really hear from you this week? And would you really break those down in our hearts and our minds this week? We invite you to just come and speak powerfully to us and to change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.